Welcome to the third installment of interviews from my Econ 265, the Economics of Racetrack Wagering Markets class that I taught at Rhodes College in the spring. Today I'm going to play back for you an interview I did with Maury Wolf on January 24th. Maury's a professional horse player and economist. So my first three interviews, all horse player legends, people that I looked up to, I learned from, I read about and read their work um, as I was an aspiring handicapper. So I hope you enjoy. Uh, I hope you enjoy my interview with Maury. Uh, again, thanks for tuning in. I'm proud that these interviews are sponsored by Millridge Farm. Millridge Farm was founded by National Museum Racing and Hall of Fame inductee Alice Chandler in 1962. Chandler's motto was "Take care of the horse, and it will take care of you." The nucleus of Millridge Farm's staff has been with them an average of 20 years, and over those 20 years, Millridge has raised or sold 36 Grade One winners. Millridge currently stands Oscar Performance in Aloha West. Oscar Performance is first out of two-year-olds at the track, and he already has 15 winners, including the stakes winner and the winner is in Red Carpet Ready. And the winner is took the Castle and Key Bourbon Stakes at Keeneland, and Red Carpet Ready won the Fern Creek Stakes at Churchill Downs. Oscar Performance's average winning distance is 6.9 furlongs, so every indication that his runners should get better as they mature it's already a promising start. His stud fee is set for 20000 in 2023, so please check him out. Well, I want to welcome uh, Maury Wolf. Uh, Maury is a fellow economist and, and uh, lifelong horse player, advantage horse player. And, and Maury, tell me a little bit about how you uh, got into racing and a little bit about your background. Um, I got in in the, probably the worst possible way, which was that Somebody told me there was this guy who did nothing but win at a harness track, and I was naive in 17 or 16 or whatever it was, and said, oh, this sounds good. Um, wasn't quite uh, wasn't quite as painted, but once I uh, got to a racetrack and saw that you could gamble on it and all of that, it was pretty exciting, and, uh, and, and that was more or less it. It took a few years until I got to a thoroughbred racetrack, and maybe a couple of years. Um, and sort of maintained a, a casual interest in harness racing and more of an interest in thoroughbred racing, although the uh, the one job I had in the business official job was actually uh, working for Stan Bergstein at Harness Tracks of America, who didn't hold my background against me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how, tell me about, like, uh, you know, how is being is sort of uh, – being an economist, giving you an advantage, do you see things differently um, in terms of the way you approach races, or is it, uh, um, or is you know, it's just the same? Yeah, unquestionably, I mean, I, I think most people in our game approach it is who do you like. Um, while I've got plenty of who do you like in me, it's also, um, to me, been equally important. How do you bet? Why are you betting? What are you betting? And that's an orientation that's, you know, probably among your students is not that unusual. But out in certainly when I got when I started going to racing, very few people were looking at it from that side as opposed to the just who do you like side. Um, uh, I always thought that the advantage I had was more about betting than it was about um, the quality of my opinion. And uh, I've always had sort of had this debate over what's more important, betting and handicapping. And I've definitely have swung more in the direction that uh, 
to be a good better and to know how to um, how to capitalize on your opinion is is probably more valuable than than who you ultimately pick. I agree. Um, you know, it's just you meet too many people in the racetracks with good opinions and no money. And if you see that situation, the answer is usually that they're terrible betters and that they don't bet enough in the right spots and they bet too much in the wrong spots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's always been that, um, you know, that, that kind of person seemed to have gravitated more to the racetrack than say to other financial markets. Um, that the lack of the lack of betting savvy is just not something that people think enough about. I don't believe, um, especially as betting has gotten more complicated. With the, you know, when I first started out, there weren't even tries. Um, now we've gone to a much more complicated betting menu, and I don't think people's skills have kept up with the uh, with the difficulty of the betting process. Yeah, and th- there's certainly areas where as the bets have become more complicated, you know, professionals and computers have a bigger advantage over recreational players than they would have had, you know, just in a conventional win-play-show scenario. Yeah, and although it's un- it's not widely discussed, um, this game was a much healthier game from the standpoint of per capita handle and things like that when it was a win-play-show game. Um, that whether it was because of the higher churn or whether it was just because people won more um, or won more often, whatever the explanation, um, per capitas have, uh, at least in the, in the sense of uh, – People, the, the more the obsolete sense of people at the racetrack and how much they bet, um, those were higher in the old days. I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious, given your sort of history of, of following racing and, and certainly following pricing, and, and we've just done a uh, we've done a lecture on on pricing. Is is to the extent that you've seen prices how you know how is pricing changed i guess I'll, I'll even ask you a broader question do you believe that racetrack march markets are priced efficiently and um and whether you do or don't how has that changed over time um absolutely not um it again it's changed for two reasons one is the change in the menu of wagers um, going from a win-play-show model to a much more complicated model with different takeouts. Um, back, this was 40 years, close to 40 years ago now, I actually did a, um, a real economic study of, um, of, of thoroughbred racing for the period 1970 to 83 which by happenstance was right before simulcasting and right before everything changed and made that kind of analysis much more difficult. Um, it was clear at that point that pricing was in the elastic point of the, uh, of the curve. And it was, um, and despite that takeouts were going up, uh, 
it's sort of a, 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 almost a case study of a monopoly business. Gambling, you know, horse race gambling was a monopoly um, that changed in the early 70s with lotteries and a little bit later with Atlantic City um, and the casinos there. And racing's response to increased competition was to raise prices. Um, takeouts went up both as a result of direct increases and also with the result of higher takeouts on exotics and the introduction of exotic wagering. So in the end, you had a probably takeout increasing by three or 4% on average over the period I was looking at. Um, the handle figures were somewhat disguised because that was the highest inflation period in American history, or at least in modern American history. And so a million dollars in 1970 and a million dollars in 1980 were two very different things. And once you took the inflation out of the uh, out of the handle figures, you could see much more explicitly the connection between takeout and and handle. Uh, at that time, my model suggested that maybe the optimal takeout was somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 percent. Um, oddly enough, I made a presentation on this and uh, at, at a conference, and afterwards. Art Rooney, the legendary gambler who um, used gambling winnings to basically become one of the initial NFL owners with the Steelers, came up to me, found me, and came up to me and said, if takeouts were what they were today, I could never have made a living. Um, it, I, I thought, was, was sort of was fascinating that someone as good at the game as he was sort of looked at the takeouts, which were effect in the 80s and said that this is a game you can't beat. Um, obviously, there have been changes to the pricing model since then. Um, it's a, in some, it's, it's pseudo-deregulated now, and um, you've got sort of a very strange amalgam of pricing. I don't know how anybody would actually calculate what take, you know, the takeout rates are so, diff are, are so different for different players now i'm not even sure how you would go about analyzing it um with the data that's out there today but it's clear that um horse racing is overpriced and even more so um in a world where you now have sports books in any number of states including yours um with much less expensive um less expensive pricing, at least for straight wagers, if not for the parlays. And uh, you also have, you know, a host of other less expensive gambling games and casinos in, um, you know, in some forms, of, you, you can certainly make the argument that some forms of stock, um, the stock market are effectively gambling. And so, I mean, in racing is at this point outside of the lottery is the highest priced, um, game in the marketplace and it's really um and that's true even after um rebates um and that circumstance is going to make racing an ever harder sell in the uh in the competitive marketplace yeah and i guess the yeah. the other factor is not only was takeout really low but you know because there was no gambling alternative you had a lot of 
recreational and uninformed money in the pools. And so um, in terms of pricing, uh, you know, does that that probably just meant even though there were fewer pools, there were just a lot more anomalies, a lot more opportunities that existed, I would assume, in the in the earlier days. It's night and day. Um, it You just it's hard for anybody who's playing today to imagine what the world was like. 25 years ago now in some ways it was it, it it wasn't as good as this might imply because the other thing we didn't have is the ability to build multi, the ability to bet multiple racetracks and such that was that, that came with simulcasting which was in the mid 80s before that you were pretty much restri- you were basically almost entirely restricted to your own marketplace and so the opportunity set was different, but it is certainly the case that the public was far less sophisticated than it is today, both from the standpoint of the tools that were available and from the standpoint of the quality of the, uh, of the people in the market. Um, although um, this will really date myself, but for um, the racing form, used to have a competitor, the Morning Telegraph. It's kind of stunning, but the racing form, which was the Western newspaper, didn't publish fractions. Um, if you wanted fractions, you had to get them out of charts um, in the past performances. Uh, in and of itself, that's an informational advantage that's just incomprehensible today. Um, crew all over the place. I mean, if you wanted formulator kind of information, you kept it on index cards. Laker first came out as a program in the early 80s. I thought it was, I was just astounded at how much better my life had become. Um, so it, it was both. It was an unsophisticated public and also a lack of tools. Mm-hmm. So you would, so in, in terms of your preparation, then it was a lot more. Uh, digging in old racing forms and, uh, you know, sort of putting together what you could to get information that we now have a click at the fingertip. But when you found an opportunity, the price is going to be good. Yes, that's that's absolutely the case. Um, uh, you know, everybody takes it for granted that speed figures are, um, are available. They actually, you know, the only speed figures you had was you did your own. Um uh, or I guess you could buy the sheets, but um, but this, you know, this is another another example of the difference in information. You know, the difference in information leading to a pricing um, a, a pricing model that enables you to you, know, you could survive on seventeen, nineteen, twenty five before the market got more efficient. Um, you couldn't thrive, but you could survive certainly if you knew what you were doing. Now it is um, that seventeen nineteen twenty five was sort of the, the standard pricing, at least in the east. Mm-hmm. Is there so? Are there, I guess there were also times that the difference would be that if a horse you like showed up at at Suffolk Downs, you would have to get to a bookmaker, or have to figure out how to get up to Boston to to make the bet. Is that uh, did you often spend time just chasing down bets, uh, getting your car, getting on a plane, chasing down bets that looked good? Good. <laughs> Road trips are kind of you know, road trips are the kind you make now of 
fanciest racetrack that I've never been to. Um, back then, road trips were anything that wasn't local. Um, mm-hmm. If you liked a horse that he was in at Philadelphia Park or Garden State or whatever, you got in the car. Or you knew, or unless you knew somebody in Philadelphia who could put a bet down for you. Um, very different world. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, that's a pain in the neck, but in other ways, it was helpful. Um, it because it was helpful because it was a barrier to entry. Um, and obviously, people who were working nine to fives weren't able, um, you know, weren't able to do what they're able to do now in terms of participation. Um, it was it was an entirely different um, it was an entirely different world, and that didn't change until the mid eighties. Now, now, part of the reason I want I brought you on is I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, what are now a um, extinct form of betters. And again, since we've talked about the pricing uh, and, and pricing across different pools, there used to be people who were called chartists, and they would watch money flows. Now, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about that population of better um, uh, that used to go to the track. Um, in most, basically, these are people who would, they would record exacta prices. Now, exacta prices aren't, back then, were for the most part not in the matrix form you're used to looking at today, but were rather one-end, two-end, three-end, and so forth. And so you would basically, the flashes would be, it would take two or two and a half minutes to scroll through that so that the flashes when exactas would come every two or three minutes and the chartists um, assumptions were that that exacta pools were largely invisible because people weren't monitoring that and so smart money would show up in exactas more than the wind pool because the wind pool was obvious and exacta pools were not double pools likewise and so they would basically make their living by noticing um, horses that were getting bet in the exotic pools and um, embedding those horses to win. Um, uh, that that basically became um, almost irrelevant once you had money coming from everywhere. Um, and... But it, but it's at a time when it was only local markets. There were people who made their living doing that. Um, it was again finding information which other people didn't have, um, uh, and it was also a time when purses were relatively low, and pools were in and handle was relatively high, and there was as much or more money in cashing bets than there were in purses. Today, with the amount of money, especially in slot purses, um, that has changed um, pretty dramatically. The other thing that's changed is horses back then ran, this is going to sound hard to believe, but horses ran every eight to ten days. Um, Now they run if you're lucky, well, you're an owner once every month, once every month and a half, whatever. And you can, you really can't set horses up in the way that you could back then. Um, 
Uh, also, again, now clocker information is widespread. Back then, clocker information was only rumor, unless you knew clocker. So all of these things made it um, made cashing a bet um, important, and so it behooved people to pay attention to money coming in um, as uh, is just sort of another place where you could find advantage. How much signal do you find in the price on a horse? And is that is that something that's changed over time? If you see a horse take action early or late or, or you see a first timer take money, is that, you know, is that something that's meaningful to you um, or, or not? It, well, it, it, it certainly, I mean, I, it certainly mattered more then. Um, the world now is the price moves that matter all um, occur um, when you're unable to use the information. Um, you know, we have a very different betting system now. Um, people are able to bet literally at the last second. Um, and those are often the most informed people in the marketplace. And so the ability to glean valuable information from the board is become much less. And I mean, I would make the argument that you can't glean information from the board period, because whatever pricing information you had changes um, between the time they leave the gate and the next, um, and, and when the next flash shows up on the board, that's not past posting. That's just people betting in the last, in the last few seconds and their bets not being, um, evident until after the race has begun. You- um, so it's, it's almost an entirely different world or they're still hot horses. Sure. Um, they're clocker horses, there are horses where you look up at and you don't understand why they're two to one. And then they win by five and you understand why they were two to one. Then you understand why they were two to one. Um, but it seems to be less, you know, it, it certainly seems to be less the case now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. So the, the price variability that occurs in that last click, which is often, you know, to me, it's just fascinating all the money that certain horses take and the money tends to go to those who, you know, goes towards the favorites, but also just goes towards those horses that win. Um, if you have a bet you want to make, you have to basically incorporate the direction that you think the money's going to flow, um, which, you know, makes you push for that much of a higher price, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's no secret that a lot of what gets bet in the last flash are speed horses not exclusively by any means, but it is, um, it is safe to say that if you bet a horse, if, if you're betting a horse that you think is going to be the controlling speed, um, you're likely to be getting a lower price when they, um, you know, when they're at the, uh, um, after the first, after the final flash that you were getting at two minutes to post. Um, other, as I said, other horses get bet as well, but it is um, it is screamingly obvious that the um, um, the, pro, the program 
that programs are oriented towards speed. Um, and so you really ought to adapt your expectations. If you're betting a speed horse, um, it's, uh, it's just going to be, um, it's likely to be a lower price than the one you were, um, you were betting. And yeah, you, you should, you, you should sort of say, okay, I like the horse is four to one. Now I think he's three. That's a bet. The horse is four to one. Now I think he's four. That's probably not a bet. Um, because that kind of horse typically, um, gets bet, um, you know, gets bet late. Now, sometimes, you know, if I like a horse at a smaller track, I will make my bet early and, and hope that, the you know, hope that the other betters or computers sort of, uh, uh push that money, you know, incorporate it into their, their betting and, and, and make it sort of neutralize it, uh, as opposed to making a bet after, you know, in that last second. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, is that the right thing to do strategically? Uh, you know, I've off, I used to bet at the last minute if I liked something, um, but now, now I've decided to go early and let uh, and let the computers and everything else mess with my number. I haven't figured out the answer to that. Um, I've certainly thought about it. I haven't figured out the answer to it. Um, uh, there used to be, I don't know if he's still in the marketplace, but there was a. Um, a better making sheet better making gigantic exacta plays in like the first or second flash. Certainly before 10 minutes to post, you look up at a board at 10 minutes and there'd be huge distortions. Um, usually it might be a three horse box. It might be, um, you know, the one horse with four horses, whatever. Um, uh, I mean, and obviously the intent was to drive betting away from those combinations. Um, I have no idea if that strategy was effective or not, Um, uh, but it was quite, you know, it was something that was screamingly obvious to anybody who looked at an exacta board that someone was doing this. Um, It was... Uh, um, the the prices seem to get normalized in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, as far as I could, you know, in my sort of casual looking, it didn't look like um, it, it, it didn't look like there were some uh, that that distorted the board in the end, but it certainly distorted it um, when people who are not um, you know, we're not betting at the last second. We're looking at the board, and it obviously just you know it discouraged people who didn't understand what was going on. And I guess back in the days, back in the day, uh, did you ever think about when you bet at all? I mean, the handle was a lot bigger, and of course, the value of the dollar was a lot uh, smaller. Yeah, and then something else. Um, you know, back then you had to get in line. And you didn't want to really be subject to the randomness of the guy in front of you betting 37 combinations 
and then reaching for his money after all the betting was in, and that could be a two- or three-minute process, and suddenly you couldn't get your bet in. Um, uh, so, you know, it was an entirely different... That, that's something that, I guess, you know, is, is something people still encounter at racetracks, but in the online world is completely un... You know, it's just not something you ever encounter unless there's a technology issue. Um, so you've gone from a world where you didn't really have the option of deciding when you wanted to bet. You might want to bet late, but late was five minutes. Um, to now when you basically, um, you know, you just, uh, you want to allow yourself enough time. So, sorry. <laughs> no, there's no problem. No. Hey! <laughs> You want to make sure, he wants to make sure he gets his point in, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, you 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 wanted to. Be, I mean, if you like the horse, you wanted to get your bet in. Um, the other thing that was um, frustrating back back in those in that era was that these were union jobs, mm-hmm. and the people at the high end, high denomination windows, and I'm not talking about the old very old days when you know, $2 win and $5 win and so forth. I'm talking about where you had one or two windows in each bay for high denomination and everything else was took anything. Well, the problem was those high denomination clerks were often elderly. They might not hear as well. They might not have good, the kind of coordination with hands that you have when you're younger. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a beneficial move to go to the 50 minimum or the 100 minimum because the clerk might not be very good. So even though, yeah, you're probably not going to have people tying up the line, um, it might still be a slower process. Um, these are all things that you know old folks talk about, but it's probably nobody under the age of 40 um, has experience with. Well, I, I am curious about, so when exotic wagers started to be introduced, when tracks started to add trifectas, superfectas, uh, pick and wagers, are those, did it take, a, are those bets that you initially went to very early because the public was probably, you know, my guess is it took a while for the public to get a hold of them and for a while for them to come, become more efficient or those ones you tended to wait and kind of see, see how they went. Oh, it was brutal. Um, oh, my God, it was brutal. You get behind somebody who starts calling out tries, you know, one, three, five, then one, three, six, then one, six, five. Uh, yeah, you, you just, uh, and you know, you're, you're, you're just sort of watching the minutes tick away as they're ordering tries by the individual ticket. Um, uh the um it just it, it took a while for that now, again originally there was only tries in the last race but eventually they went to tries in every race and um and that was uh the high end windows at that point became better because they tended not to attract that kind of patron Mm-hmm. And, and were, were those like were the tries when they first introduced them, or the were, were they were they better betting opportunities as far as uh, um, uh, as far as uh, someone who is more of a professional player 
um, because the record because people at that point they were new they didn't quite know how to play them uh, were they ones that you would basically say hey now they have this yeah. perfect I need to go I need to play this while the, the the before the public learns how to play them or is it ones you wore weight on absolutely but again those were 25 percent hold bets <coughs> and so you needed a um, at least they were where I was. You needed, um, you know, when when there are twenty five percent hold bets on top of which there's also cider withholding for six for three hundred to one and over six hundred dollars. So you're talking about a situation where the pool has to be really inefficient <coughs> um, to make up for um, both the higher takeout. And if your capital was, um, you know, if you didn't enjoy having a substantial amount of your um, uh, of your bankroll in withholding that you weren't going to get back for a year, um, that was an issue too. Uh, certainly, it encouraged you to play shorter price tries. Um, uh, but so, yeah, the pool was inefficient, absolutely. But the price of that inefficiency was high. When did you first start hearing about rebates? When did those come on the, on the, um, when did those come on the radar? Okay. Uh, basically the mid nineties. Um, uh, what happened was, and it was a gradual process. Um, started out with, Nevada and a couple of dog tracks. Um, it um, most of the action was in most of the rebate betting you could do was in Nevada. Um, a couple of uh, a couple of sites saw this as a, an opportunity to attract big betters, and they were right. Um, they attracted some very big players. There were three or four. Or maybe five places in Nevada that were in that business in Las Vegas that were in that business. Um, that in turn, um, but Las Vegas could never basically the Interstate Simulcasting Act did not apply to Greyhounds, so there was always a rebate business for Greyhounds. Or not always, but there was a rebate business for Greyhounds to be developed that was exclusive of Nevada because Nevada couldn't offer it. So you had places cropping up um, first as Greyhound operations. Then Nevada, um, at the behest of the large casinos, illegalized rebates in the state of Nevada, and that moved everything to the world we have today of um, of basically um, you had some offshore operations, you had some operations in the U.S., and um, that's sort of, so the mid-90s was when that really became um uh, a major business. Um, uh, and that's sort of when uh, I would say that's the day when the business changed. The, re the reason it, it essentially deregulated pricing 
because of the simul basically to get back in economics for a second what you had was a um a really strong price discrimination model where if you were a retail customer of the racetrack they were charging you to use that 171925 if you were someone who was distributing that the prices back then they were charging 3% for the signal obviously if you're being charged 3% and your hold is 171925 there's a lot of room for price negotiation and that's what happened um this in Nevada was the first to do it. Shops were born um, both to handle the Greyhound business and later because Nevada um, stopped offering rebates in the fashion they had been. And so for the, um, for the longest of times, these places who were not directly tied to the racetrack paramutual system in the sense that they were not they didn't have a cost of racing um uh started offering um their players pretty substantial rebates and that was the uh that's the genesis of it um and the relevance is something like this as you know as i said in the beginning it was my model suggested that the right takeout might be somewhere in the 10 to 12% category to optimize handle. Um, 17, certainly wasn't the right price, but rebate shops and casinos and so forth got horse racing to much closer to the right price but they only did it for some customers. And as a result of that, you have the two tiered pricing model that you have to this day of some customers get much different prices than other customers get. Um, I'm of the opinion that the business would have been a whole lot better off if it had just basically lowered its prices, but that never seems to have been, on the table, partly that has to do with the peculiar way that racing is, the price is negotiated between horsemen and tracks in the state, and it's often legislated, and that's a really cumbersome mechanism. Um, and also, it plays out, it, it just plays out very poorly in a negotiation. Um, and these other parties who didn't have any of those problems and could simply said what they what they saw as the uh, as the best price. Um, now over time, three percent become eight percent, nine percent, ten percent as racetracks are charging higher prices for their signals. But it is still the case that the customer at a uh, at a shop pays is certainly closer to an optimal price than the one than the person who walks in off the street and bets at the racetrack when did, or at, a, at an ADW 
spiel. When did you first hear about sort of the rise of sort of computer and computer robotic wagering, computer um, assisted wagering? Uh, in 19, I, the, uh, well, there are two answers to that. I heard about it first at a Las Vegas um, race book that I was betting at. I saw it at first hand when a um, I had seen a bunch of exactors drop in a way that seemed impossible. Um, and I called up a, uh, a friend of mine at a racetrack and said, go look at what's going on. And he called me into his office a couple of days later and said, this is what's going on. And the racetrack itself was unaware of it. Hmm. Um, that basically there had been that a very large better was betting computer to computer without the racetrack having direct knowledge until they, um, you know, until they looked at the, until they looked at the printouts of, uh, of what was going on. That was basically, that was an end around by, from Antoad. Hmm. Well, yeah, definitely. In cooperation, in cooperation with the shop. Do you think there are any strategies for which a pen and paper player can, you know, can, can go head to head with a computer? Certainly not. They, they can't, you know, compete with the depths that computers can go and the amount of races they can bet in. But any, any strategies for, for, for knowing that the computer betters are out there? Well, I mean, I think the best strategy, but it wouldn't, I'm not sure that the correct, the correct phrasing is pen and paper. Um, people look at horses and know what they're looking at. I think right now have an enormous advantage, um, or maybe not an enormous advantage, but have an advantage. Um, because that's information that's simply that that's information that you can incorporate into a computer model. Um, so those people are, um, it's pretty clear that those people, this is a horseman type of skill, someone who's raised on a farm, someone who's worked at a racetrack, that set of people, um, uh, certainly, you know, can, can find their niche. Um, I think it's becoming increasingly hard for the for someone who picks up a racing form to um, to compete. I mean, one of the places that that you've done very well in and is you know is, is just a terrific place to show to do this is in tournaments, mm-hmm. um, where at least you don't have you don't have that you don't have them. Um, that's another place for a pen and paper person to be, uh, um, uh, to, to be employing his skills. Um, coming. Yeah. I, I just look at what's happening out there and, um, and don't know. You just don't really like what you, what you're calling the pen and paper future. For your kids who want to um, go a little further, there's a book that was um, published, I 
two or three years ago, maybe four, I don't know, it all runs together, by Adam Kucharski called The Perfect Bet. He's gone on to um, to a different calling. He's now one of the chief um, epidemiological spokesmen in England. But before um, before he uh, before he returned to epidemiology, he basically interviewed um, was able to interview a number of very successful large betters in different. Uh, basically in different games from horse racing to poker to sports and talked about the impact the computer modeling is having on all of these um, on all of these gambling games and I think it's fair to say he came to the conclusion that this is you know they are already dominating the marketplace and they will be dominating it ever more mm-hmm. um and why? And it's uh, certainly worth a read if uh, if anybody wants to sort of understand what the what the gambling world looks like today. And it's not just horse racing; it's all across um, uh, all across the gambling spectrum. Well, heck, it's it's even you know it's even even more outside of gambling. I mean, sports and, and finance. It's, it's computers you know, play a huge role. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's. Um, and the, yeah, it's not just there. Um, uh, you know, there's this is also, of course, the, the quantitative, um, the quantitative aspect of uh, of stock market investing has had you know just huge, a huge impact on that. The difference is that, of course, that's a essentially almost a virtually no hold mm. game versus horse racing, which is a very expensive. What about the, 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 the times where we have the numbers in our favor? So positive expectations, positive EV plays, carryovers, force outs. Um, I, was, okay. I was curious about your thoughts on those, how maybe those have changed over time. I know that you were uh, one back in the day that would get on a plane to chase a carryover. Those were the good old. That was the, I mean, you, you just can't, people cannot imagine what the carryover world was like in the beginning when you were talking about what was the tri pool like what was the carryover pool was like um where it was even harder to put together a bet correctly and um most people had no idea that that situation was beneficial or certainly they didn't have enough of an idea so yeah, you would get on airplanes and fly around. You know, fly around. Much more of the action then was carryover than mandatories. Um, in those days, basically most bets were allowed to run, and these weren't single ticket bets. By the way, these were you got paid, um, and you know there were. This was true in greyhound racing. It was true in thoroughbred racing. It was true in harness racing, although harness racing always had the problem that it was the, um, in some sense, the most easily solved of the three horse racing games. So it was harder to build a carryover in harness racing than it was in uh, in the other two sports. Um, and carry and. Uh, 
the amount of betting that these bets would get was relatively small relative to the carryover. As I said, by the standards of today, they were unimaginable. Um, and, uh, and you, um, and there weren't that many people in the beginning who knew what they were doing. One group who did, um, uh, to say the least, we called them the Philadelphia group. Um, other, others had different names for them, but they were from Philadelphia, hence the Philadelphia group. Um, they were the by far the biggest bettors in the marketplace. Um, and they, you know, they, they certainly grabbed their share of the equity. Um, they went on to bigger and better things. They're now Susquehanna trading, um, which is a very successful, um, options trading firm. Uh, the one thing Susquehanna didn't have was they didn't have particularly good handicapping. They just had, a good program and they had plenty of money and those were sufficient to, as I said, they, I think they did very well. I don't know that for a fact, but I've never heard anybody say they didn't. Um, uh, so they were sort of, they, they were the, and they weren't at every play because they were working for a living. Um, and they were doing pretty well in the options world too, I think. Um, but they were uh, they were in some of the plays, to be sure. But a lot of it was just, um, you know, it was, it was because you had to fly somebody out and so forth and so on. It was um, uh, the, the, there were a lot of barriers to entry. Um, today there are no barriers to entry. Um, today you never have to leave your house to participate in these pools, and it's much um much much easier to play than it was then um uh the result of that is the equity and carryover bets has diminished and it's diminished even more because of what um, so you will still see plays that are positive equity which means that the amount of money returned exceeds the amount of money that is bet into the uh, is bet in. So um, you might, I mean, you, it's basically a it's, it's a simple calculation, and it's your dollar is worth one a dollar three or a dollar four. More often these days, it's worth ninety eight cents or ninety six cents or ninety cents. Um, uh, one big change is that you really have no idea anymore what the equity is because the last bets are gigantic. Um, you will routinely see bets in the many hundreds of thousands of dollars in the last flash. Mm -hmm. And so what might be a theoretically positive bet at two minutes to post is not a positive bet when they go off. Um, and so the equity in those plays is reduced in addition to which, the guys who are making those bets have superb models. So they are also, um, they're more, uh, more, they're basically better than you are. And so the equity in those plays is not anywhere as close to what it was certainly back when, um, 
you know, 20 or 20, uh, before it became a national pool. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what I've seen. I've seen not only, you know, that often when you have these big carryover force out positive EV on paper plays, that the returns just don't add up to to anywhere, right. you, well, like you would think they would be. Anyway, I've got a, I've got to close up. I've got a, I've got a role in the class. And I was just curious, what, uh, what is the, uh, what's the uh, most out of the, out, out there, unique racetrack that you ever went to chasing down one of these carryovers? Most unique racetrack. Um. God, I, I, I mean, I hadn't thought we. we, we well, it was a regular at Mountaineer for a while. Now uh, it, was, it was. I can't remember whether it was Waterford Park or Mountaineer. Then that was a total racetrack um, on the Ohio border in West Virginia, on the uh, western side of the state. Uh, it, there were plenty of dog tracks back in the day that, uh, or do, no longer exist. That um, that I. Uh, um, uh, it made trips to um, uh, the um, probably probably their harness tracks in Ohio. Um, and certainly, uh, you got to uh, you know you got to see a different part of America when you were in uh, when you were doing that for a uh, for a living. Um, the New Mexico track, Santa Fe was a wonderful track. Uh, Albuquerque. Uh, so you, you got around. Um, so if there was an if there was a nice carryover at uh, in New Mexico, you'd hop a plane uh, and uh, and 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 uh, make a bet. Well, in truth, we had somebody else get on oh. the plane. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I made I made one or two of those trips myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was always you know you, you wanted New Mexico was a place you wanted to go. Um, Kansas City in December, maybe not. Ah, the, the um, Woodlands, right? Is that the track? Yeah. The Woodlands, yes. I was there. I certainly was there. Um, as I said, it's kind of the sad thing is how many of these places are no longer, uh, are no longer here. Um, you, you obviously, you're, you're quite familiar on the Greyhound side of, uh, there just aren't too many places left. No, it makes me very sad. And, and again, these, uh, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing more fun than some of these, like, twin try and try super carryovers that just again have gone by the wayside but anyway look i, I it makes me sad to end this conversation it's been extremely informative i've learned a lot and uh, again i appreciate it more i appreciate your time thanks for having me all right thanks again appreciate it, more. <laughs>